0: We're going to go ahead and get started. We are, um, every year at Redemption, we, um, in the four weeks leading up to Advent, we study four saints of the church, just hoping that if we, like, tell their story, um, we can maybe make sense of our, our own story a little bit. And our saint for this week is one of the giants in all of the history of Christianity. His name is St. Benedict. Um, Benedict was born in the year 480 in Nursia, which is kind of in rural Umbria, Italy, to a noble family. He was actually a twin, he had a twin sister, Scholastica. They were tight, worked together their whole um, lives. And Benedict was born into the middle of the Roman Empire right after it had sort of collapsed. Um, remember Constantine, just to get some dates in your head, Constantine's Edict of Milan that legalized Christianity was AD 313. Then um, Council of Nicaea was like 325. Then um, 380, Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the um, Roman Empire. And so by the time Benedict came along for, for more than a century, the Roman Empire was Christianized. But then these pesky like, um, Germanic tribes, the Goths and Visigoths and Vandals came in and were overrunning large swaths of the empire, including Umbria, and they would, they would come in and conquer and settle, their king would take over some land, and, and very often they would convert to Christianity. Um, this was, of course, the beginning of the feudal system and kind of the era of the, the organization of the Middle Ages. So as Rome's power kind of gave way to the barbarian kings, as they called them, um, the Catholic Church kind of began to step in and fill some of that void. And it would just be a couple centuries later, this region would be part of the Holy Roman Empire, where there's all these kingdoms and then a pope over all of them. And so Benedict lived in this time and place where everyone was essentially Christian, and the entire, you know, culture was Christian. And, and then at the same time, a time when, like, Christian political power was on the rise, and yet there were some problems with that, That he that he had... To address, and it began with the fact that he was just one of those kids that, even as a young age, had this strong faith in God. Was he loved God and wanted to learn about God? And he, was just, he was kind of one of those nerdy little kids who was totally into it. Was anybody like that when you were young, just totally into the God thing? I really was. I was way an overachiever, um, but he, he had this sincere faith, um, and it had come to be the center of his life. It's not like he wanted to be a priest or anything. He just wanted to be a Christian. The problem was that in, in Rome, at the very heart of um, this, what was going to be Christendom, right? For the next thousand years, Benedict found it nearly impossible to live as a devout Christian. It was kind of a strange predicament because everyone around them called, called themselves Christians, but none of them were actually following Jesus. In the way they live their lives. And that's what Benedict wanted more than anything. And so um, his parents sent him off to Rome to study. And he was like, This is this is nutballs in Rome. I mean, these, these people are crazy. All these guys do is, is um, he was scandalized. They just, all these rich kids stand around drinking and partying, and nobody prayed, nobody talked about philosophy. No, they were all pagans, kind of Christians in name only. And so he just left. He didn't even tell his parents. He just bailed. And came to this little town called Infide, a little mountain village, about around 40 miles from Rome. They had this monastery just outside of town on this kind of picturesque lake. And he went and met the monks, and they let him live. They let Benedict take up residence in this cave above the lake. It was actually in the ruins of one of um, Nero's old palaces that was in, in ruins. And he lived there as a hermit for the next three years, in silence mostly thinking and praying and contemplating and, and, and reading and just thinking about life and he he matured greatly in body and mind and spirit and gained the, the respect of all the people and the monks so much so that when the abbot died they asked him to take over and, and he did and then he immediately took kind of the way he had he was living as a monk and enforced that on the whole priory on all, all the other other guys and so they hated it it was, it was too rigid. And severe, and he kept saying, "You got to stick with it." And then they hated him. They hated him so bad they actually tried to kill him. They poisoned his wine one day, and um, but it's one of the miracles that makes him a saint. He somehow the glass before he took it shattered all on its own. And so Benedict quit and moved back to his cave. He's like, "No, <laughs> no thanks. I don't want to die with you people." So he just went back and kind of resigned. And yet people were still drawn to him. They would come and visit with him and talk to him about their lives. And he started to become kind of famous. He'd pray for people and they'd be healed. People would just go out and live out in the wilderness so they could be near to him and talk to him. Eventually, he kind of gathered them into these monastic communities. There ended up being 12 little houses with 12 men in each house, working and praying and living together. And so once this was kind of under his charge, he had to figure out a way to organize them, some sort of structure for them. And he had learned his lesson from his first huge fail, and realized that like the harsh ascetic life of a hermit wasn't for everyone. So he began to work out what became Benedict's regula, or what is commonly known as the rule of St. Benedict. Anybody heard of the rule of St. Benedict? Okay, some people have. Excellent. So regula in in Latin just means like standard or principle, like the the norm or the rule, um, like a standard unit of measurement. Or like, I think of it like a level that tells you if you're true or not. You compare yourself to it. So Benedict's Regula was a way of structuring their common life around things like work and rest and prayer each and every day that would sort of help them check in and stay true in their life. So they had this schedule, this rhythm for every day called the rule of St. Benedict or the Regula. And It structured all their days and weeks and months and years, and it became the norm for each of these little houses. Um, But this time, instead of being like totally harsh about it, Benedict tried to cultivate kind of a warm, loving family type of community. There was a ton of time for, for friendship and leisure and fun built in. And so instead of being extreme, he built it kind of on moderation, not going to the extreme but still making sure to make time for the most important things. So they, they prayed together seven times a day, which is a lot, but they didn't get up and pray two or three times a night like a lot of the monks at that time did. Part of the rule was you had to sleep eight hours every night. Cannot I get, like, you know, an amen? Maybe sneak a nine or ten in there every once in a while? But, um, and then they, they, like, they worked together. They were some business. Each household had a business. They had common work, like candle making or farming or whatever. But when... When their eight hours was done, the bell would ring for prayers and they just dropped their stuff right where it was and would go pray and they'd come back and pick it up the next day. So there was always time to enjoy life. They ate meals together, they told stories, they read and talked about life, just hung out as as friends. But because they were living according to this regula, this rule of life, this set way of ordering their days, they always had space in the day for the important things. The things that would connect them to God and help them to transform as human beings, and they they found this to be true. They were becoming more like more like Jesus, and actually felt like because of this, they were becoming more and more alive. And so the regula became sort of like um, like a song that soldiers sing when they're marching. You know, what I'm talking about like the little chants and rhymes that the soldiers sing that that help them stay in step with one another. They can be funny or motivated. Usually they're raunchy, right? This is how they roll. But for Christians, it, this is a different song, right? So. While everyone else walks at their own pace, these guys had this regular, this, this song, so to speak, that would keep them in step and headed in the same direction. And, and the regular was like that. It allowed them to walk in step with one another without just kind of defaulting, falling in line with the rest of the culture. They worked, they rested, they prayed, they played, and they passed their days marching to the beat of a different drum, all of them together. Each of the houses had a leader called an abbot who led the community. And they just kind of helped everybody submit to the regula, which told them things like how to split up chores and choose responsibilities, how to structure their time, when to eat, when to sleep, when to pray, um, all those um, things. And they, they also, in the regula, prescribed some spiritual practices, things like confession or worship, or spiritual spiritual direction, or prayer, and, and this became um, really important for them. In fact, there were some of the practices were really taxing. Things like humility, they had particular ways to do this. And hospitality is a big one. Um, in in fact, that be, that has become hospitality one of the things that Benedictines are known for. In fact, most of their monasteries double as retreat centers, and they have been a refuge for millions of, of people. So as they conform to this regular, what they found is something strange happened. They um, found that by uniting, going the same pace and organizing every day around what they believed to be important, they began to experience that, um, that joy that seems to only come when you can feel yourself um, sense yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. They knew it was, was happening. And then also these, these practices, um, things like humility and hospitality, they became really, really um, life-changing for them. And even though they had all been kind of washouts and failures before, this regular brought some stability that sustained them, They could actually do it. And, and it was sustaining them in a way of life that was very different from everybody else in the culture. It's kind of an unlikely thing. But since they took these vows of, like, stability, And fidelity and obedience. They had, they had. If they failed, they argued. If they had conflict, they just had to stick together, and find a way to work it out. And they, and they figured out this is, this is changing us, very deeply. Eventually, Benedict um, started more um, abbeys, and moved the hub of the whole thing to this place called Monte Cassino. I think we have a picture of it, and then you'll see why he moved it there because it's on the crest of this hill. It's just straight, beautiful. Go on to, go on to the next slide. slide, if you will, Chris. Yeah, man, not bad. You can't really see in the back, but this is like this vast-like panorama of the hills of Italy. It's gorgeous. Um, but he went there and kind of settled there with a, in a new abbey, And his regula began to travel around, to be copied and distributed. People all over it read it and followed it. People who weren't even interested in being monastic in any way. They'd just adapt it for their own personal situation. And sort of without meaning to, um, Benedict had invented or innovated a whole new form of Christian spirituality that, was sweeping the globe. I mean, it was becoming like this global movement. And it just kept going and going until till today. 1,500 years later, Benedictines are a worldwide spiritual order. They have like 7,000 different Benedictine monks and 280 abbeys all over the world. And part of Benedict's rule was that each of the abbeys should remain autonomous, and they, it was kind of a collegial confederacy. They, they um, their, their unification was that they followed the regula. They followed the rule. After a while, um, when the church got bigger and bigger and more spread out, they elected what they called an abbot primate who would represent their whole group to the church in Rome. I actually, um, I know the abbot primate. We're actually friends. His name's is Gregory and I know him because he was at Maryville, Missouri for years. I've talked to him m- many different times. Um, but they became very prominent even among um, the other orders. Maybe maybe the, the most powerful at different points in the church. Scores of well-known saints have been Benedictines, Anselm, Boniface, Bernard of Clairvaux, Augustine of Canterbury. A bunch of popes were like, I don't know, 10 or 15 different popes, authors, theologians, great women of the church. Women could be um, monks as well. Hildegard of Bingen, um, Joan Chittister, Dorothy Day, all those nuns from The Sound of Music. They were all Benedictines, right? <laughs> and and in, our, in our own day... There has been a strong revival of Benedict's influence in our time. I was introduced to the Regula in in 2003 and really for the past 15 years of my life have spent a lot of time each year up at Conception Abbey, uh, Benedictine Abbey in Maryville, about 90 minutes from here. And um, I go on retreats and study leaves uh, and there's a a monk there named Father Adam who's been my spiritual director for a long, long time. And um, I, Learn to write my own regul,a and I keep it. I keep to it. I, I update it every year, and submit it to some other pastors who do the same. And it's not um, it's not just me. This is happening in all different streams, especially of the Protestant Church, among Protestants, um, mainline, but also like among evangelicals and sort of ex-evangelicals. Um, people mostly for whom um, the their, uh, the the evangelical spirituality that they were given was basically do a, do a quiet time, do a daily devotion every day. That was it. And um, it's not enough. And so we kind of looked about for what the church has done before and Benedict's writings come, comes to the fore. And we learned practices like fixed hour prayer or spiritual direction and others. And so it's seen this big resurgence in our day. I think in large part as a reaction to the secularism of our own culture, of Western culture. It's interesting to think about it. Benedict sort of lived at the beginning of Christendom and 1,500 years later, we, we live in the end, the aftermath of it. The era when Christianity was this default setting for all Western culture, it, it's over. You know, They used to have a common set of beliefs and stories and symbols and practices and everybody saw the world pretty much the same way and that world is over. It came to an end after World War II, and we are living in a secular age. One way to say this, um, I learned from Charles Taylor, is like four or 500 years ago, you go to Amsterdam, um, Paris, Prague, walk around down the streets and ask anybody if they believe in God. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who did not believe in God. And you go there today and ask the same question. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who actually does, much less somebody who's, you know, deeply involved in the church. And this is unsettling for the Christians who are used to being in power during Christendom. There's a ton of conflict in the church over how to handle this loss of cultural and political power. It's been very revealing. You know, how hooked on power we are. How um, much of our theology and practices and patterns of thinking and acting are actually kind of contrary to the, the gospel. But we could get away with it because we had all this clout. And in a secular age, the cloud's gone. And there's a big fight among Christians about how to respond to this. And there are kind of four responses. I want to walk us through the responses and, and because a, a couple of them are based in Benedictine spirituality. And I think this is part of what we're all struggling with in the face of secularity. One option is to resist and fight the culture. So the the move here is to wage war against secularism in the name of God and the church. When we're looking at all these, one of the distinctives, one of the things I want to pay attention to is how it situates um, situates us in regard to our enemies because they're all a little bit different. These guys want to conquer the enemies of the church. And so they initiate culture wars. And this is, you know, the approach of much of Christian fundamentalism. These folks then, you know, take Christians and try to form them into spiritual warriors. And the goal is to sort of destroy, eventually, the enemies of God and the church. And toward that end, what, they're, what they really need, what they really are after, is power. And a ton of Christians in our day have chosen this option and are making, I think, a mess of things. It's not helping. Um, and the reason it's not helping is that it's not really rooted in the life of Christ, who did not kill his enemies, right? But, but forgave his enemies as they were killing him. And so essentially, it's, it's a terrible witness. It just doesn't work. It defeats the whole purpose of the church. It doesn't image God. It images human power instead. Another option is to embrace and succumb. The move here is to assimilate to secularism. So you you don't conquer your enemies, you merge with them and with culture. This is, in fact, often called enculturation. And this is the the approach of much of current-day liberalism. They, They will need to then shape Christians who are consumers of popular culture. And the goal is kind of to befriend the, the culture, secular people, and just influence them slowly over time and influence the society. And toward that end, what they really need to establish is, is political and cultural capital. And the problem with this, of course, is it's kind of a weak witness because, in the end, there's not that much, if any, distinction between what is Christian and what is culture. There's no there, or there and so they don't really have an impact the culture. My assertion is that I'm trying not to do too bad of a straw man, but I think this is the first two option. My assertion is I don't think either one of these work. To embrace and succumb, you know, all I can think of when I think about um, like embracing the second option here is Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You know, if we just assimilate to, to the secular culture, we lose any kind of unique identity that's that's determined by the cross and the resurrection. So we end up being part of the problem instead of part of the solution. At the same time, the culture warrior Christians, you know, I, just, I see no Christ in, in waging war. I mean, all I can think about when I... Consider this option as Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a different way. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this this does not sound like what I see when I look at culture warriors. And there's a sense, I think, in which if this is the way we go um, and we're trying to follow Jesus at the same time, to to kill or conquer our enemies is essentially to become like them. And so even if we win, we lose, gain the world and, and lose our souls. Because the Jesus way is to win by losing, by kenosis, that that word from Philippians that that means pouring out our lives for our friends, becoming alongside them poor and meek and merciful and pure and peacemakers and persecuted even. So I think neither of these first two are good options, but there are two more, never fear. One of those is to withdraw and escape. And um, the move here is to kind of cloister up like, a, like monastics do, um, away from the culture of secularism. Not to conquer enemies, um, but to sort of avoid them, even abandon them. And this is really the creation of a wholly separate culture, kind of cloistered off. It's sometimes called sectarian. Or in, in modern-day Christian culture, you might sometimes hear this called the Benedict option. There's actually this really big book by a guy named Rod Dreyer. He wrote a book called The Benedict Option in which he argued that our culture is so corrupt and so far gone that the only thing Christians can do is withdraw and escape, cloister up, remove yourselves to kind of insular communities and begin to shape Christians who will be then sort of like monks, like contemporary monastics in little intentional communities removed from culture. And the goal here is really just it's almost like giving up on culture and just trying to um, protect a way of life so it will survive for a later day. And toward that end, what they say they need is a regular benedicts to be particular, most of them. A way to order their life while kind of, and preserve them while kind of the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And um, Dreyer's book is quite influential today uh, across different streams of of um, the the church today, and um, it's not just him. There are a lot of kind of neo monastics. They call themselves communities popping up all over. And, and of course, the problem is this is the problem with this is to be effective. They have to be really insular, and then they have no witness at all. There's not much contact with the rest of the world. Think of Anabaptists or or monks. You know, it's not a lot of contact. But it is one of the options, and it is something the church has done. Um, in order to protect itself um, down through, through the years. Remember that Anabaptists cloistered off and protected the, the, the theology of the gospel of the kingdom and the peaceable kingdom and are preaching it powerfully to us today. You can see that as a good move. Like they had to cloister off and just wait for Christendom to run its course, and then they happened on the scene. So it's, sometimes this is a good option. There's one last one that I know of. And it's kind of more the one that we have chosen here, and that is to serve and transform. And the move here is kinosis pour out our lives for our neighbors. Not to conquer enemies, but to just love them. And, and we might call this, or it often gets called, culture making. So this is where we're looking for God already at work in culture and then go in, joining with God and fomenting more culture. It's always a lot of art and writing. And And building things, working alongside the culture as we chase kind of a way to see in the midst of it all the true and the good and the beautiful. This is the approach that I would call resident aliens. That's what the scripture calls it. In the world but not of it. And more than anything what what this approach requires is churches. And these churches not warriors, not consumers, or monks. Churches. Prophetic communities that worship together and invite others in. And so, and so the goal really is not even the survival of the church, but the renewal of the culture itself, of all the world. And in service of this, um, these communities need a regular like Benedicts, a set of practices that can sustain them in their way of life. But the result, hopefully, this time, of being out and in, in with would be a strong witness to the culture, where everybody can see the church at work in neighborhoods, in the workplace, in schools, and families, in relationships. Now, I think that the first two are not legitimate, but the second two are historically um, ratified, legitimated um, approaches. And so the question really is, how do we know which we're supposed to do? And this is what I think we can learn from um, St. Benedict. Benedict lived at a time when the church was still in control of government. It was a Christian government. Christian society. But the church was corrupt. I mean, from the time that Constantine took over, you know, Christianity, immediately bands of monks began leaving and going, this is this is over right here. Like, this is, you know, the, the entire culture ha- is gone and they've taken Christianity with them. And so we have to cloister up and protect Christianity until this runs its course. Similar thing to what the Anabaptists did. And my sense is that this is a special calling. And um, sometimes it's appropriate in a cultural situation, but it's usually when the church has control of everything. It's a state church. This is not very faithful. There are smaller, like, localized reasons, like, for instance, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, is a sectarian move. People leave the bar and those friendships around drinking, and they cloister up every night with a bunch of sober alcoholics and develop new practices that'll help them, sustain them in their sobriety. That's another way that we can do this. But Benedict, he was living at the rise of Christendom, where everyone was a Christian, but nobody was faithful to the way of Jesus. Jesus. And the Christians had all the power. So, so it was not the same context as ours, a secular age. And I think that's the main difference. And so even though I think there is a lot to commend about that withdraw and escape move, we really are living now in a secular age, a time of deep disorientation. And I think we actually do need a kind of monastic response in, in regard to the regular, a way of patterning our common life around intentional practices practices that can instill in us a Christian identity, both as persons and also as a community. I mean, unless our common life is built on like steady, consistent habits and rhythms and practices that help us resist assimilation to the culture, um, will I mean the the church will just continue to decline. As it is now. And toward that end, I think we need a regular rhythms and practices that sustain us. And we, we need a way to do this without going to war or without assimilating or without just withdrawing. And um, so, I don't think we need to separate, hunker down, and wait for the dark ages to pass, you know. That's kind of a rare calling. And it's also. What the monks are for, it has never been what the church is for. The church is established down and in community, always stays with communities. And I, I do think the church should be different from the world, but in in the world. And and I think that's that's our calling. That's what the church is for: is to be a people of. Mission who engage with their neighbors through acts of love and mercy and grace and especially reconciliation, caring for people on the margins, pouring out our lives for them. And and I mean, how will we do this if we separate out? I'm not sure you can separate and have a mission in the world. Not only that, I think it it also misses the fact that God is already out there working in the culture, in the world always. I sometimes think I see more Christ out there among the non-religious types than I do with kind of religious fundamentalists. And I do think the church should be different, but not over and above and not separate and withdrawn and certainly not at war. That's not the Jesus move. He was down in the mess and the mire, living completely differently. Plus, even if we wanted to, I don't think... Withdrawal is a realistic option. I mean, Stanley Hauerwas always says, as you know, he's one of my favorites. He always says, how can we withdraw? We're surrounded. Like, that's just the way it is. And we need to stay in it with our neighbors. But as we do march to the beat of a different drum, these practices that transform us, shape our imagination to be like Christ and help us resist assimilation and teach us to lay down our lives for the life of the world. We actually kind of have a regula at Redemption Church that we've been holding to for more than a decade now. Um, We we call it just our four pursuits. The um, ideas of worship, mission, discipleship, and wholeness. And they're not like accomplishments or requirements or, or beliefs even. They're just things that we work toward through intentional practices. So like worship, we just gather every week, whether we feel like it or not. And try to hold a sense of reverence for God and self and other in the world. We tell stories that shape our imagination for what it means to be Christian. We, we engage in these practices. We, essentially what we do is we kind of practice the, in symbolic ways the way that we want to be all the time as we leave this place. In mission, we, we become paired with the outcast Always. Um, We leverage whatever resources we have for those who are on the margins. And so essentially, wherever we go in life, our mission is just the person sitting next to us. How can we love them with the love of Christ? There's discipleship. We commit to, you know, structuring practices into our lives that will help us transform. Things like tithing, which goes kind of directly against the consumerism. Of our culture, things like Sabbath keeping that that go directly against the the cycle of busyness and self sufficiency. And then the last one is wholeness. We're chasing wholeness because the church is forever trying to give spiritual answers to like emotional and relational problems, right? And we do not want to perpetuate that cycle. And so we try to seek wholeness through things like um, reconciliation with one another forgiveness and grace, fidelity over time, practices like um, psychotherapy and spiritual direction. We want to face our own brokenness and actually change and grow to our wholeness. We have a, another set of kind of, this would be part of our regular too, I think, just these disciplines that keep us grounded. Some of them I already said, but that would be Sabbath and tithing, community and solitude. Those are all kind of twin disciplines, and then finally that we're just, we always want to be paired with the outcasts because it changes everything. That's sort of, if we had a regula, it's very a lot shorter than Benedict's, but that would be a regula. And so what I, what I invite you um, to do today in light of the life of St. Benedict and the regula that allowed his guys and then people, millions of people, Um, down throughout the last 1,500 years to stay faithful, um, I invite you to think about your own practices. And if we don't need to fight a culture war or just become agents of the culture itself or flee to a monastic community, how are we going to stay in, in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood, in, in all our different friendships? How are we gonna stay in them and yet be salt and light as we read earlier? And I think that um, for those of us who are kind of spiritual washouts most of our life, who really want this and really try, but seem to fail and fade, that the place to look is to our regular, our practices. How are they um, equipping us to be part of the kingdom of God? How are they forming us in Christian identity so that Christ defines us more than any other thing that ever has tried to define us, and we finally bear his image? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the life of St. Benedict and um, for his desire just to be part of what you're doing in the world. Think of all the times he must have tried and failed and (laughs) fled for his life and thought he was ruining everything. We're so glad he stayed with it. And that this kind of way of ordering life just so that we can enjoy it, but so that we include the important things we're just grateful for his example and I pray that all of us um, will consider our own lives our own regula, the one that exists and maybe give us an imagination for what could exist so we're grateful for the life of St. Benedict pray this in Christ's name Amen We invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. If you remember on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it, gave thanks for it, and he he passed it around and shared it with his his followers, his little band of 12. And he said, "Um, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, passed it around again. And they all drank from the same cup. And he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal, a new relationship between humanity and God. Um, one based on grace and mercy and endless second chances. And then he said, Every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life. Be made of the stuff I'm made of, all those Beatitudes that we read. And then be God of the world, be solved world see who you've become and what's possible in their lives. This is, this is why we receive communion. This is why we do church, really. And so um, I invite anybody who calls on the name of Jesus to join us in this practice. If you would um, pray with me and let's bless the elements. Lord, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup here. We pray that you would make it into a spiritual food and drink means of your grace and as we come and receive it into our bodies may we receive you once again come and live inside us make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let our secular age, our world feast on us taste and see your goodness all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?